When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. I'm Nicole Lappin, the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. It's time for some money rehab. I've been called many things in life. Not all of them are great, but one of the favorite nicknames I've been given is the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. Because the financial world has a language problem. There is so much jargon. And if you try to look up the definition for that jargony term, there is even more jargon in the definition. And then you have to look up those words and it becomes a nesting doll of jargon. So to decode some of the terms that you've heard most in the headlines lately, I'm bringing back on Josh Brown, aka the reformed broker. Josh and I go way back to CNBC days, and he is one of the smartest and coolest financial advisors out there. I invited Josh back on the show so we could unpack some of the terms we get the most questions about together. And no, of course, you won't need a dictionary to follow along. Preamble is over. Foreplay is over. Let's fucking go. Josh Brown, aka the reformed broker, one of my favorite guys on Wall Street. Welcome back to Money Rehab. So happy to be here, Nicole. How are you? I mean, I'm doing better now that I see you and your flower wall. I have a team. They're called New York Backdrops, and they decorate some of the biggest and best restaurants and hotels and weddings all over New York City. And uh, they come in here and give me a refresh every season. So this is uh, this is what summer looks like. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. What summer looks like for me, my hot girl summer is nerd girl summer. And I get so many DM slips that are not the fun, sexy kind. They're just like, can you decode this jargon of Wall Street? And as we both know, there's so much jargon. We like our jargon. We like our, it makes us <sighs> sound so smart. So wicked smart. <laughs> I mean, I think people hide behind the jargon, right? Even the not so sure. smart folks. I would, I, would, yeah. I would agree with that too. So I'd love to just go through some of the most common ones I get asked about and we can just kind of decode them in real English. You do speak English, right? With a, with a Long Island accent, but still it is English. I'm here for it. All right. So alpha is the one I get a lot. This one's really simple. So people use the term alpha to describe the uh, excess returns that they get versus the uh, plain vanilla stock market return. Like a benchmark. So the stock market, the S&P 500 would be like the benchmark return. Most professional investors who manage funds compare themselves to the S&P 500, which is the index that any investor can just buy for free. So if the S&P 500 is up 10% year to date right now, which it is, and Nicole, your mutual fund or hedge fund is up 13%, 
then the alpha would be that 3% difference. Very simple, very cut and dry. Okay. So people who work with fund managers are looking for like the most alpha possible. Otherwise, they can just like go on their brokerage app and buy S&P 500 index funds. Yeah. So they're looking for alpha, maybe not necessarily the most alpha possible, because as we both know, and you tell your listeners all the time, the more reward or return you want, the more risk you're going to have to take. But I do think that for an investor paying a mutual fund manager, you know, 100 basis points or 1% or paying a hedge fund manager 2% and two, two, two management fee and 20% of the profits, yes, there is that expectation that the manager will be able to generate alpha above what the regular market would have given them. Otherwise, why bother paying? Yeah. So like justifying those costs. That's right. This dovetails with another one that I get. Often they're like together, alpha and beta. So what is beta? Beta is just a representation of the market return itself. So if it's it's the bond market, then people would be looking at an index called the Barclays Aggregate Bond Market which basically looks at all of the publicly traded US Treasury bonds and corporate bonds, and it's an index. What did the index do this year? That's the beta. The S&P 500's return is what we would say is the stock market's beta. So beta, just very simply, is what the index return is. So alpha should be above beta, meaning there should be excess returns if it's an active manager. Of course, most managers cannot generate alpha every year. It's not reliable. Um, if it were, then everybody would invest with that manager. There'd be no questions asked. So most active managers who are running a fund, they have some years where they can generate alpha above the regular beta that the market gives you, but almost none of them can do it on a consistent basis. And that's the game that we all are playing on Wall Street. I mean, this feels like we're in sorority <laughs> panhell system. Yeah. It's important, though, when you are being pitched an investment by someone who looks and sounds like me, that when they start using Greek letters, you stop them dead in their tracks and say, speak to me in my native tongue and tell me what you are actually saying, because I may not be Wall Street smart, but I'm street smart, and I know when someone is trying to confuse me. So um, never be shy about saying, I don't know what you mean by Delta, start over, and let's speak English. I love that because people say it sounds like Greek to me, and there is a lot of like actual Greek. Yeah, and listen, it's not these things haven't been invented to confuse people. You have to understand that the underpinnings of modern investment management are mathematics. And so... These terms originate from somewhere with the right intentions, and then they get bastardized by people who are trying to sell something. I was just going to say bastardized. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So the, the terms themselves are not bad. The way that they are used when retail investors are being pitched can be misleading. Yeah, to make it seem like they're smarter than you are because they have all this jargon. Arbitrage. Arbitrage is an investment strategy where uh, usually a hedge fund will try to benefit from the difference between two prices that eventually are supposed to meet. And the best example I can give you is a merger. Let's say hypothetically, Lapin Corp is going to buy downtown Josh Brown Industries and Lapin Corp is willing to pay $58 a share for DTJB. And my share price, though, is not trading at 58 on that news. It's trading at 56. 
if you believe as an investor that the merger is going to close, meaning the FTC doesn't have a problem with it and there's no regulatory concerns and the money will be raised, then you would buy DTJB at 56. You would sell short Lappin Corp at 58. And as the amounts between 56 and 58 get closer together and the deal closes, you would profit on that two point spread in between. And that is called merger arbitrage. And some of the, the largest, most famous hedge funds have made a lot of money on those bets and they usually pay off. And when they don't pay off, it's because something happens that, that wrecks the deal. So we recently had a situation where Microsoft was trying to acquire Activision, which is everyone's favorite video game maker. And the uh, regulators had a problem with that merger going through. The people who were betting that it would close lost a lot of money because when that news came out, Microsoft shares rallied higher because they weren't going to spend all this money on Activision and Activision shares fell because they were no longer getting acquired. So that spread blew out, as they say. And if you were short Microsoft, you lost there. And if you were long Activision, you lost there. So it does happen where an arbitrage trade doesn't work out. And that's uh, a somewhat recent example. And it's not just with mergers, too. No, just one example. It's kind of used colloquially on Wall Street, I suppose, or or in financial circles uh, around like exploiting some differential. That's a great point, Nicole. Absolutely. You can use it if you're buying something like an asset in London, you're selling it in New York, but also like just general business terms for how to take advantage of some price differential. Yeah, it's like uh, there, there are very few edges left on Wall Street, but sometimes you'll have an edge where you will see, for example, that a specific oil stock tends to trade in a correlation with the price of oil. And then for some reason, there's this really wide differential. And so you would go in there as an investor and you would say, I'm going to arb out that differential because I think it's going to, here's another jargony term, mean revert or return back to its normal state. So you'll have investors trying to arb out the difference between a stock and a, and a, and a commodity or two different stocks that are trading at very wide valuation spread. And they'll say, I'm going to arb, arb out this versus that. So yeah, it has become a term that uh, it's become like a, co a colloquialism when you think you have some sort of an edge or you think some historic relationship is about to snap back into place that's currently out of whack. Uh, arb out. <laughs> like all the cool kids say. I'm about to arb some I'm about to arb somebody out right after <laughs> right after this. Recording. I wouldn't put it past you. Um all, all right. right, over the counter stocks. So like over the counter at a pharmacy, you can buy the weaker, you know, what is it, Sudafed? <laughs> yeah. And then you have to get the good stuff behind the counter. So over the counter is kind of a term that's fallen out of use because it's become less relevant. Um, there are so many exchanges that you could trade markets on. Most stocks are listed somewhere. But the historical term over the counter was, was in reference to a stock, usually a security that is not listed on an exchange. So one really prominent example of that would be Nestle. Nestle is a European mega gigantic corporation. They don't list on a regulated US exchange here in New York. They're not on the NASDAQ. They're not on the New York Stock Exchange. They've deliberately chosen not to be 
because they don't want to pay the, the costs or satisfy the listing requirements. So that stock does trade here. You would buy it on what's called the pink sheets. It had the, the tip off that's a stock is OTC or over the counter is that it will have five letters in its ticker symbol. Um, and usually they'll end with an F or a Y. And so there are very large corporations that are from another country, for example, that trade over the counter only in the United States. It also refers to penny stocks. So penny stocks, they're either the company is too small or they're not filing the, the proper regulatory documents. So they can't be listed by NASDAQ or by the New York Stock Exchange, but they still can trade over the counter. I think for your audience and frankly, most of my audience, this is an area that they should not be involved with at all. If a stock does not meet the requirements to be listed on the New York or the NASDAQ, you probably don't want to be trading it. Right, because it's important to remember that there's not a lot of trades that happen. Like you need a bid and an ask. Yeah, it's highly illiquid. Yeah. The less liquid a stock, the more shenanigans can take place <laughs> between buyers and sellers. And um, there's enough risk. <laughs> there's enough risk buying listed companies. Nobody needs more risk and nobody needs uh, illiquidity risk. No. If you're investing in equities, they should be liquid stocks. Right. Ain't nobody have time for that. Like if you bought Microsoft right. today and you want to sell Microsoft later today or tomorrow, like no problemo. An OTC thing, not so much. Yeah, it's trillions of dollars washing through stocks like Microsoft every day. The, the bid ask spread. So let's get into that really quickly. The bid ask spread on Microsoft is a penny. Meaning the bid, what somebody wants to buy it for is, you know, just hypothetically, let's say it's a hundred and the ask or what the seller is willing to sell it for is $100 and one cent. And so there's not much of a spread in between because there are so many buyers, there are so many sellers. And so that's a stock that's highly liquid. And that's, I think, what an investor should be concerned with don't want to buy something where it barely ever trades and you're forced to accept a price that's way far away from the last price traded. And as we were talking, you said liquidity. It refers to the, the breadth and depth of a given market. That could be the market of shares in one particular stock, or it could be an entire commodity or stock or bond market. But just liquidity is how much buying and selling is taking place in a given day, not just in share amounts, but in dollar amounts. And also, how many regular participants there are in a given market? Uh, how many market makers? How many people are there buying and selling that particular issue for a living? And obviously, the larger stocks will have more liquidity. Generally speaking, smaller stocks will have less. Liquidity can be affected by how many analysts are covering a stock, can be affected by how many institutions are in a stock, whether or not that stock is listed in an index which means that there's an ETF out there ready to buy it or sell it at all times. So liquidity usually is also going to be a function of size. I think of it like an ice cube. Like how quickly can it melt? <laughs> right? Okay. That's how you get your it's liquid. Not terrible. It's not terrible. It's not terrible. Um, okay. You know, like a house is an illiquid asset, right? Because like it takes a while to melt that ice cube to sell it. Good point. It's not cash. It can't be like or same, same as cash, like Microsoft stock. Yeah. And houses trade very infrequently. So, you know, Microsoft, you have a stock price every nanosecond. Um, there's a trade going off. Your typical house doesn't move even inside of a decade. 
So you have a price from 1997 and then you have a price in 2023 and you know, there, there's been no trading in between and those prices will be wildly uh, separated by, by time. And uh, that's a, that's a good analog for stock. Although very few stocks don't trade inside of one day, but yes, the principle is, is definitely the same. Or like if you have a founder who says they have, you know, a gazillion dollar valuation or whatever, and they have all this like private equity, yeah, like not private equity as in like they have a private equity firm, but it's like, it's equity in a company that's not publicly listed and therefore not liquid. Right. Cause like nobody wants your maybe dog shit equity in your <laughs> in your tech company. Yeah. One of the great stories I've told to illustrate the, the concept, uh, I knew a guy who was trading bonds at JP Morgan a million years ago. And one of the ways that Jamie Dimon was early, uh, the CEO of JP Morgan, one of the ways in which he was early to figure out that there was a potential crisis, uh, financial crisis brewing, is that he walked up and down the floors and talked to traders and asked them, what is the price of that mortgage bond? right? What is the price of this? What is the price of that? And of course, the trader would point to the screen and say, look, there's the price. And he would say, okay, sell 10%. And then the trader would actually try to sell something and test the liquidity of the market. And it turned out the bids, the buyers were significantly below the prices that were being published on the screen. Right. Because something is only as valuable as someone's going to pay for it. Yeah. I, look, my dad said, I, I told him how much I was worth in comic books. Uh, when I was 11 years old and he said, okay, find a buyer, yeah, prove it. And I went to the comic book store in my town and I, and how much are you willing to offer me? I have alpha force, you know, issues one through 12 mint condition. Look, they're in plastic, never read, never touched, never breathed on. And he said, that's nice. Pound sand. <laughs> I, had, well, I had a book this thick. It was like a telephone book of all the latest published values of my issues of comics. And he said, that's great that it says it in the book. Here's what I'm going to offer you. And that was a really good lesson in price versus liquidity. And uh, oftentimes, uh, it's not until you go to sell something or buy something that you really find out what it's worth. Yes, such a good point. Also, I, we could double click on phone book, but it will just make us look way old. <laughs> Hold on to your wallets. Money Rehab will be right back. Money rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win-win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? 
If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now for some more money rehab. All right. So now that we've talked about liquidity, let's double click on liquidity crunch, because that's something that's Hmm. been in the headlines lately. Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. A liquidity crunch is when a lot of people want to transact on one side of the market and there's nobody else on the other side of the market. And we're actually going through a liquidity crunch right now in slow motion with commercial real estate, specifically office real estate. Um, You've got tons of owners and even banks that have portfolios of office buildings, there are no buyers on the other side. No one in their right mind is interested in, in even an A property, an A, what you would call an A building, like uh, the brand new building they built in Midtown One Vanderbilt. I think they're at 95% occupancy. They're doing fine. They have all the best tenants. They have a brand new, beautiful, lead certified skyscraper. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about buildings that were built in the 60s and the 70s. They have bad sight lines. They have concrete pillars running through the middle of the floors. They have small windows. There is no interest in that real estate at all. And a lot of these properties need to refinance. The amount that it will cost them to refinance has now gone up a lot with interest rates. And as a result, they are looking to sell. Who in their right mind is a buyer? So that market has to clear. A market clears when there's just such ridiculously low prices that somebody says, okay, uncle, this is a piece of shit, but at this price, I'm willing to take the risk that it might not be a piece of shit at some point in the future. And we're not there yet. And so you have a liquidity crunch in the office real estate market, specifically uh, parts of Manhattan and San, San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. I don't think enough people are talking about this, honestly. I think we're really fucked with commercial real estate. Well, we're not, but a lot of people are. And the question is, how big is the impact on the overall economy and when will it be felt? Um, one of the things that's peculiar about office real estate is that it moves at a glacial pace because it is very hard to get an owner out of their building, even once they stop paying their bills. Everything's a workout. Everything's a, all right, let's sit down. Let's figure it out. It's one of these asset classes where everyone involved has an incentive to pretend. Pretend it's not as bad. Pretend the rents aren't going down. Pretend there's going to be better demand a year from now than there is today. The banks don't want to end up with these buildings that they've lent money to. Well, that's where we get fucked, I think. Yeah, you and I don't have a bunch of commercial buildings unless I don't know something about you, Josh. Like, no. we're no Steve Ross or whatever, like, with a bunch of buildings in New York. But I own a, sh- I own a shed in my backyard. <laughs> I own a gardening shed. Excellent. <laughs> let me know. If, let me know if I can quote you a price on that. I can't wait. <laughs> 
$5. But what happens is when they get screwed, like it trickles through the credit that they're taking out of the banks, right? Yes. That's ultimately how we, you and I, the rest of normal people get fucked. The banks don't want to own these properties. So it's extend and pretend, extend and pretend. And actually, a friend of mine in commercial real estate on the investment side, so not a landlord, but somebody that lends money to landlords, said that the new mantra is survive till 25. So they all know they're fucked uh, next year. They all know that there are all these like bonds and, and financing issues that are going to come up for refinance and it's going to be ugly. They all know that five day a week thing is not coming back and companies are downsizing and they still want space. They just maybe want less or they want to pay a better price when they re-up, et cetera. So it's, it's going to be ugly and it could be ugly for years, but there's this like prevailing idea amongst uh, the commercial real estate community. If you can just survive till 25, something will get Hold better. on for one more day. That's right. That's right. <laughs> when uh, you talk about amortization, I mean, that's a term that people are used to if they have a mortgage, right? So in case you don't, what is amortization? It's also been used colloquially too. Yeah, it's spreading out costs over a period of time as opposed to absorbing it all at once. So you, you can amortize payments over the life of something, whether it's like alone or or whatever the case may be. So yeah, for most people, they're going to come into contact with this term when they're talking about a mortgage. Like if I owe you, I guess, just for easy math, like, you know, 1200 bucks amortizing would be 100 bucks a month. Yeah, you have to factor in some interest payment. And if I'm no, you're not charging me interest because you love me. If I'm the lender, I'm happy if you want to amortize, because that becomes consistent cash flow for me that I can model and I can base my own budgeting on. And also I can say, okay, no problem. We'll amortize this out over 24 months or, you know, 10 years. And here is the additional cost that I'm going to add on because I'm letting you amortize this. You're not just a nice guy. Yeah. But you are. I am. But lenders aren't. I mean, or they're just not in for it for funsies. It's a business. Oh, of course. And if you're a borrower, you you have to make that decision. Is it what's in my best interest? Do I give up all of my liquid capital right now and not pay the higher interest associated with an amortization? Or do I spread my payments out because I'd rather have my liquidity today because maybe I can invest that money and make more than what my payments will be? So uh, nothing is in absolute terms. So one thing for your audience is that financial decisions are not made in a vacuum. It's, it's always trade-offs. It's, it's this versus that, not this or not this. And so once you start thinking in those terms, it helps you answer questions of which option should I pick? Yeah. And when you think about comparing interest rates, I guess that would be a colloquial way to talk about arbitrage, like comparing what you're getting versus what you're owing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you talk through like a basic example of that? Like if I'm paying, you know, 4% in student loans and I'm making 7% in my index fund. Yeah. So look, I don't recommend that most people try to use the stock market to pay off their bills um, that they already know that they're going to incur, especially because most people's debt takes the form of credit card debt. Like statistically, if you have debt, you probably have credit card debt. The rates on credit card debt really have nothing to do with the Fed or interest rate. They just go up. 
<laughs> like like they're I think they're 23. Well, it depends on your credit score, but yeah, it's insane. Depends on your credit score more than more than it depends on what the central bank is doing. So, with that being said, if you have a stock if you have a stock that you're really excited about, like let's say these days Nvidia, the idea that you're going to carry $20,000 in credit card debt but you're going to put $5,000 into Nvidia banking on the fact that it can go up fivefold you can make 25,000 and then you could pay your credit card debt and you'll have that excess return. That's the kind of bet that people should not be making. So we always tell people from a personal finance perspective, uh, take care of your high cost debt first before you worry about generating a return on your money. It's unlikely that your stock market performance is going to outrun something like a, a 23% uh, credit card loan. But when somebody talks about like rate arbitrage, that's what they're doing. They're comparing interest rates of their assets yeah. and their liabilities. Corporations do this all the time. So corporate, but corporations, uh, Fortune 500 companies, they spent the last three years borrowing at two and 3%. Go-go days. Right, so that was a really smart bet, which was to say, let's arbitrage between what it's going to cost us to raise a billion dollars in the debt market, just hypothetically, and and almost every other option to spend money, invest money looked better and, and just pay the 2%. So you had companies do that to fund stock buybacks. You had companies do that to fund acquisitions, R&D, capital expenditures. That is not the same calculation now. Money actually has a cost attached to it and it's five, six, seven, eight percent and now all of a sudden, some of these projects that looked um, like a like a smart bet when interest rates were zero, now all of a sudden it's a much tougher decision, and that's arbitrage. And when you talked about the central banks, you talked about monetary policy. Something that I hear get screwed up a lot uh, in financial blogs or news or whatever is like monetary versus fiscal policy. Yeah, people use that interchangeably, but it's not the same. Right, fiscal policy is what the government decides, and monetary policy is what. Uh, the Federal Reserve decides. And the Federal Reserve is quasi-government, but it is not controlled by Congress or the White House. It confuses people, but the easiest way to think about this is the Federal Reserve is independent. It's got a board and it's got a chairman. The chairman is appointed by the president. The board members are appointed by the president, but presidents change. In fact, presidents change more often than Fed board appointees do. So it looks a little bit more like the Supreme Court, although their tenure is not for life. But so there is some independence there. So yes, it's sort of government, but it's not controlled necessarily by Congress. So the Federal Reserve conducts monetary policy. What they're basically doing is controlling the cost of money for borrowers, like banks and businesses, and the availability of money in the form of just how many dollars are out there in supply. That is monetary policy. Fiscal policy is uh, what we just witnessed with the debt ceiling debate. That is the House and the Senate making decisions about the federal budget. Taxing, spending, yeah. Yeah, sometimes they want to stimulate the economy because uh, we're, coming in, in, we're in a pandemic and they, they want to conduct fiscal policy that supports growth. Sometimes they want to pull the reins back because they want to simultaneously cut taxes. So that's fiscal policy. One of the most astonishing things about the last few years is the way in which fiscal and monetary policy were conducted hand in glove 
to get us through the, the pandemic. So the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, worked very closely with Steve Mnuchin, who was uh, involved with fiscal policy from the White House to the Treasury Secretary, and they worked very closely with Congress, and they passed a whole bunch of uh, stimulus plans, and it was monetary and fiscal policy working together in an emergency. And in this conversation, you hear fiat currency a lot. That's not like a little car. Yeah, fiat is a word primarily used by douchebags. Um, it's <laughs> it's a. W- Tell me how you really feel, Josh. It's a way for them to promote crypto and or talk about the U.S. dollar. But fiat currency is basically currency that's not backed by any hard asset. So back in the prehistoric times, most currencies were backed by physical gold, like actual, there was a gold bar in place for every, you know, quantity of dollars. We got away from that type of currency and the pejorative term, it's mostly used pejoratively is to say it's fiat currency. But again, almost nobody you will meet in your normal life actually uses that term. It's like, mostly used by people who are selling gold or selling Bitcoin and are trying to convince you that, you know, the dollar is on the verge of ruin. And maybe they'll be right. Just it hasn't happened yet. All right. Futures. Futures are just uh, another way of saying contracts that trade based on people's beliefs about the prices of commodities. So the big futures exchanges in Chicago, uh, there are two of them. And basically, that whole world came about because farmers were taking a lot of risk in what they were planting and they didn't know what the prices would be when they harvested their crop and brought it to market so if you were growing corn or you were growing tobacco or you were or you were raising hogs and and cattle you're planting in february and march and april you have no idea what it's going to be worth come september october so futures contracts allowed agriculture, the agriculture economy to hedge their risk or to lock in prices that might not have been the best possible prices, but were good enough that it offset the cost of doing the actual planting. And then, of course, you had large corporations who were big users of commodities um, like coal and iron and uh, you know large food companies that had sugar costs and apparel companies that had cotton costs, and they would then use the futures market to offset their risk. Because remember, they have to purchase this stuff in order to turn out finished goods, like a sweater or, uh, or a building. So the, the futures market is where people can either hedge or speculate on where they think the price of things will be six months from now, three days from now, two years from now. And so it's a very important part of not just trading and investing, but how business gets done in in this world. And now, of course, it's not just commodities. It's not just agriculture or precious metals or uh, oil and energy commodities. Now you have people trading bond futures. They want to know what the treasury price will be. You have people trading cryptocurrency futures because they're insane. You have people, you know, basically looking for ways to either profit on their opinions or hedge the risks that they're forced to take in the normal course of business. So it's a it's a very large market. It's very important to 
uh, global and, and local economies. Fun fact, did you know that when I was 18, I started on the floor of the Chicago Merck and I didn't know anything at the time. And I was like, there's, there's pork bellies. <laughs> this shit is traded. Soybeans. Like, is this, I thought I was getting punked. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else just told me that. Oh, uh, uh, my friend, Jill Schlesinger, her father was a, a commodities trader. I love her. Yes. She's awesome. She started as an options trader and didn't go Oh, The story is she wasn't physically big enough to trade commodities in Chicago because back then it was open outcry pits yeah. and they were 